Hello, my name is Benjamin Kitchings, and you're listening to the History Voyager, a podcast about history. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. I wanted to kind of put a bow on the Spanish flu. And when we talk about the Spanish flu, we need to understand that we're not really, or at least modern researchers, don't actually believe we're talking about really a flu at all. Maybe something that affects the neurological system and the respiratory system, but and can have flu-like symptoms, but not exactly the flu per se. And the reason that is, is because of disease outbreaks that happened in the 2010s that caused a massive reappraisal of the Spanish flu and what it was. The other thing I wanted to bring up is that the Spanish flu, or at least our understanding of the Spanish flu, was either, depending on how you see it, was either the victim of or the product of essentially what was a worldwide government cover-up. Now, what I mean by that is the powers that be in 1918, for some reason, outside of the Spanish, the powers that be sort of took it upon themselves to not talk about the Spanish flu. This is because of, basically, there was this prevailing theory in what we today would call polite society that was basically saying, you know, let's accentuate the positives in our community. It was also the fact that they didn't want to be on the hook for something that they couldn't really solve. And it was also sort of basically what you want to call racism. Now, what do I mean by racism? Um, What I mean by racism is back in the day, they would have thought that the, you know, the Irish human was different from the German human was different from the African human, was different from the Chinese human, was different from the Japanese human. And you see this in how authorities in America would have dealt with the flu. Because you remember in San Francisco, the Japanese people in in uh, San Francisco were basically lauded for their immunity to the Spanish flu, which is rather strange because basically they were, you know, they weren't ac- accounted for as living people in San Francisco during the 1918 outbreak. One of the other things I want to bring up when I talk about the Spanish flu is I want to talk about the fact of when the Spanish flu actually was or when we today think it was. There was a government study that was released in the 1950s that indicated that from 1900 to 1924 or 27, there were Spanish flu antibodies in the population. Now, what that means for all of us non-medical folk is that essentially modern science, at least going back to the 50s in a classified government report, seems to believe that there was a disease that was kind of, if you will, the background radiation of America. So there was a disease knocking around from about 1900 to the middle or later stages of the 1920s. The other thing that is really interesting to think about is our relationship to what we think of today as the Spanish flu is almost entirely done through archival research and through family stories. This is partly because 
public health in America during when the outbreak occurred, or when they thought the outbreak occurred in 1917 to 1918, was basically non-existent. It existed in hospitals and military bases and volunteer positions in churches and things like that. There was no real thought of community health the way there was, say, for the Ebola outbreak or, say, for the polio outbreak in the 50s. In fact, you could argue that the reason that we have public health at all in this country is because of the Spanish flu. That is actually one of the changes that the Spanish flu caused was this notion that we need public health. Now, one of the things that occurred during the Spanish flu was, of course, World War I. But modern folks try really hard to separate the deaths from World War I from the deaths from the Spanish flu. It's becoming more and more apparent to modern researchers that that's getting harder and harder to do, partly because some regiments were so terrified of the Spanish flu that they would actually shoot dead people, meaning that they would be able to count this person with the Spanish flu as a combat injury or a combat fatality. This was done partly because the Spanish flu to anyone who encountered it in 1918 and 1917, was genuinely creepy for a whole lot of existential reasons. One of the things that a lot of people thought was that only, like if a German person could get a virus, that meant that a Portuguese person couldn't, and so on and so forth. There was definitely a racial hierarchy that permeated basically all thought, certainly in Europe and possibly in Asia, and definitely in America. And the racial hierarchy, at least with Europeans, would have thought that Nordic Europeans were more basically hardier than Mediterranean Europeans. Of course, this was thought of by the Nordic Europeans. I'm sure maybe the Mediterranean Europeans, if they had thought about this, would have reversed it somehow. But the point is, is that on the, basically on the eve of the Spanish flu, Pretty much everybody thought they were different types of biological entities from the other person. One of the reasons that the Russian flu, which was the working generation before the Spanish flu, wasn't treated nearly as bad or nearly as seriously was because it was thought that only Russian people could have died from the Russian flu. Of course, we know today that not only was that not true, but it also didn't start in Russia. It started, like so many other diseases do, in the Asian steppe. And it impacted Eurasia, though not really America as we now believe. The Russian flu was one of the last diseases that basically was allowed to exist in obscurity. This is a long and proud tradition for diseases, being able to ravage Eurasia and North America in relative obscurity, the Justinian Plague and the Black Death being some of the most famous diseases of this class. However, the Black Death and the Justinian Plague were far more, I guess, historically significant because they wreaked 
more havoc on the political landscape of their day. The Justinian plague led to a massive destabilization of the western part of the Roman Empire, and being as it was around for hundreds of years, it allowed for the rise of Islam onto the world stage. Also, the Black Death came at Eurasia in waves and gave rise to something that everybody alive during COVID has heard a lot about, herd immunity. It is important to understand that herd immunity of the Black Death isn't entirely effective now, and it took hundreds of years for some people to become immune to the Black Death. And nobody really knows who that is until the Black Death comes upon us again, as it did in the 2010s. The Spanish flu came about during a time when science was coming into its own, and medical science was coming into its own. At the beginning of the Spanish flu, medical science in this country and in Europe was in a deplorable state and vastly improved because of the Spanish flu. There was a cohort of doctors that started their working lives during the Spanish flu who cut their professional teeth on the flu. These doctors, in turn, were haunted by the flu. If they had any self-awareness at all, they began to realize that the Spanish flu might not have been a flu at all. Modern folks wonder where the flu came from in terms of where the label the flu came from. It is important to understand that the first doctor in America to encounter the Spanish flu, a doctor named Loring Milner, who encountered it in Kansas as early as 1915, was not describing what we would today call a flu. He was describing something that attacked the central nervous system and the basically the heart and other circulatory uh, situations in the body. He listed the flu as all kinds of things, none of them being the flu. And it was because of these letters being found in Harvard that this reappraisal of the flu began in earnest in academic settings. And when we couple this with, for example, the outbreak of the bubonic death in first world countries, you begin to see a more widening out of this reappraisal of the Spanish flu. This podcast being situated in that now, it is important to understand from a modern perspective that we would look at the Spanish flu today as essentially the governments of the day were not trying to treat the flu nearly as much as they were trying to obscure what the flu was and the devastation that the flu impacted on their populations. That I would argue, is because these people were not 20th century thinkers. They were not, they were barely 19th century thinkers, most of them. But what they were doing is they were trying to hold on to power. And a disease does not allow you to hold on to power, specifically a disease in a pandemic form. It has only been through modern historical researchers and modern medical researchers that this reappraisal of the flu has begun. And it's important to understand that every president 
after Woodrow Wilson, from Woodrow Wilson, even arguably to George W. Bush, had to deal in some way with the flu. And George W. Bush, in his case, he read about the early stages of this reappraisal and started the pandemic team. The last president that had to deal specifically with what could have been a flu outbreak was Gerald Ford. It fortunately wasn't a flu outbreak. It was merely some people in the Pacific who were getting sick. But the fact is that he had to deal with it. Now, how did he have to deal with it? Or in what way did he have to deal with it? FDR was genuinely disturbed by the flu. You could argue this was because of his polio or what have you. But he tasked the government to come up with a package of things that they would do in case the Spanish flu reappeared. It was Gerald Ford that used this package or attempted to use it. He didn't need to use it, thankfully. But in doing that, we then get a list of presidents from after, from Woodrow Wilson, who arguably died of the Spanish flu, going all the way to Gerald Ford, who had to deal with the Spanish flu in one way or the other. And then the presidents after Gerald Ford still had to have that on their mind because the Spanish flu had affected so many people from such a large generational cohort. Now, it's interesting, according to modern people, to go back and look at what that cohort was. One of the things that's fascinating about the Spanish flu is it didn't really impact elderly people at all. Modern researchers wonder if that's because perhaps the Spanish flu or something very much like it had been around earlier and that a lot of the elderly people in 1918 and 1917 had gotten sick with that and therefore some immunity to what we today call the Spanish flu had been transferred. It's also worth noting that the immunity to the Spanish flu was essentially lifelong, unlike, say, with the modern thing we're dealing with today, which is COVID-19, which lasts between three and six months in very rare cases. The medical community is united around the idea that eventually we're going to either have to have another lockdown or we're going to have to have some sort of drastic government-like intervention, I guess, in the virus itself. So that brings up something that's a big difference between the post-Spanish flu world and the current COVID world. And that is that after the Spanish flu, there was essentially this bipartisan thought on how to deal with pandemic diseases. And you can argue whether or not this thought was overreacted upon various times or not, but the fact is that this bipartisan thought existed throughout all levels of government and across both parties, and it was essentially spectrum-wide. This you can really see as a departure from how COVID-19 is being dealt with in America to the point where the Trump administration is even 
repurposing the stockpile that Bill Clinton and George W. Bush had set up to deal with pandemics, that is the PPE stockpile. So now states are left to fend for themselves and they simply either don't have the resources or the initiative. There seems to also be this other aspect among some of the governors where they want to perform for the president in the same vein the president is doing. I think, and I've said this before in my podcast, I think the reason this is is because from 1946 until 9-11, America was in a golden age. And then 9-11 happened, and the golden age basically ended. And now this is really the first marker, this COVID-19 is this first marker that we are not in this golden age anymore. We live in this interconnected world and we have to act it as though we do. And that you can really see with the Spanish flu because the Spanish flu was spread vis-a-vis the internal combustion engine. And just like COVID, COVID is spread with this interlocked economy that we all live in. And anyway, we grew up, I should say humanity, grew up because of the Spanish flu. And I, I don't know if COVID will grow us up as a country or not. I'm assuming that it will because I believe in happy endings. I always end my podcast by saying I'm having a good day and I hope you are too. And I do. I, I really do think that we humans are descended from a very remarkable and flexible creature and that we will get through this. I think that this will test our institutions and our faith in government and maybe even our faith in generations. But I think we will get through it because they got through the Spanish flu But arguably, did they get through the Spanish flu through intervention of their own? I don't know the answer to that, because the thing about the Spanish flu is the Spanish flu basically went away. You can argue whether or not any of the treatments actually worked, um, were actually effective. There were doctors that spent their entire careers after the Spanish flu trying to get down to the bottom of the Spanish flu. And they tried to get down to the bottom of the treatments that worked and the treatments that didn't. There were treatments and studies done which were very puzzling because they were done in such a way that was very unethical. And they should have given the Spanish flu to people if it was in fact a flu. And none of those cases resulted in the transmission of the flu. And that is one of the things that lead people to wonder whether or not it was the flu. Uh, People at the time were thinking it could have been cholera, but then they were, a lot of times those same people would subsequently say, but there's never been any case of cholera literally spanning the globe. Also, you have to remember that cholera, cholera kills people through dehydration, and the Spanish flu does not. And that's very interesting because the way that Spanish flu would kill people was both the way that the flu would do it and the way through like seizures 
and also through extremely high fevers that would actually cook the, the nervous system, so they think. Cholera is also a very debilitating disease that basically requires bed rest of its victims in a way that the flu simply doesn't. With the Spanish flu, you could literally walk around infecting people by the gazillions. And also, the flu basically existed in places that were not favorable to cholera, meaning that cholera is something spread by dirty water and the flu wasn't spread by dirty water. The Spanish flu existed in places where there was plenty of clean water. The Spanish flu existed in first world countries. The Spanish flu was no respecter of class, where cholera basically is. Cholera mainly kills people who are too poor to afford clean water. So what was the Spanish flu? Well, it was a disease essentially of the central nervous system, and also a disease that resulted in flu-like symptoms. For many, many years, the classical telling was that it was essentially H1N1 that had gone haywire. And it wasn't until, basically, the bubonic plague in the 2010s that people started realizing that, no, it wasn't H1N1. It was something else. And also, there was this reappraisal around Loring Milner's letters that basically led that more and more into question. Well, the other thing it was was a legacy, I think, of failure. It was also a legacy of basically global governments more interested in the status quo than they were interested in basically healing and caring for people. It was also a, a legacy of learning that we're all essentially one big happy human family and that we have to get along because of that. It led to fascism in Europe because of the overreaction to the revelations that we were all basically one big happy human family. And also, I think, it was kind of the last hurrah of this 19th century way of thinking in global governance, at least in Europe and in America. Well, with that in mind, I'd like to say that I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too. Bye-bye.